I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart sensitive people into liars thieves gluttons and whores liars and thieves and gluttons and whores oh liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the show that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And this week, I'm very honored to have with me a guest from Bali. And her name is Natalie Speakerman, and she has quite a story to tell. It's lovely to see someone looking so comfortable in their own skin, Natalie, and peaceful and with a beautiful surrounding of, you know, the rice fields behind you. And even though some of our listeners will be just that listeners and they won't see any video, it's amazing the contrast of who you are now and where you were at the beginning of your journey in recovery and sobriety. So welcome to Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. Thank you, Nancy. It's actually Natalie Speakman. I've had many people uh, mispronounce my name. You said Speakerman. Speakman. Oh, without any. Yeah. Got it. Speakman. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how I did that. I was born to speak, so yes, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me. And is speaking part of the work you do in the world? Uh, yeah, actually now it totally is. <clears throat> I'm a spiritual life coach, Reiki master teacher, intuitive. I, I go live a couple times a week on the number one free meditation app, Insight Timer. So yeah, I'm speaking often there <laughs> as well, which I love. Great. So living up to the name. Yes, very much. And what qualifies you in our Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? I've been a liar. I mean, and, you know, they say that, I mean, what, how many times a day do people lie? But <laughs> in general, my addiction for sure was a liar, then a glutton, then a whore, then a thief. Yeah, all, all of the above. So it's not one category, it's it's all of the above. Yeah, actually what led me into my alcohol addiction recovery was an arrest for stealing pills from a pharmacy that I worked at. So, you know, I read yet missed really part of that story. I didn't know that you were arrested. 
I had seen your writing about taking the bottle of pills and um, and wasn't it your mother that discovered them? Mm -hmm. So did your mother have you arrested? No, my mom told my dad, my parents were divorced, but she, you know, didn't know what to do. She found this bottle of 500 Xanax in a boot in my closet that I'd stolen. And she called my dad and he was like, if you don't tell, you know, if you don't turn her in, I will. And she said, I'm not turning in my daughter. So he called, <clears throat> he called the pharmacy. He didn't call the police, but he called the pharmacy and told them. And then they brought in auditors. Yeah. Then federal police. So I got arrested on two counts of um, federal drug charges with a maximum 30 years of federal prison. Well, you obviously didn't spend 30 years in <laughs> and tell us how that story concluded. Well, I got arrested. I was 22 years old. This was in 1999, just to orient everyone to that. I spent 11 days in jail. My bond was $30,000 US. I didn't have $3,000. Nobody, you know, my parents wouldn't put up the house or bail me out. So I had to wait until it got reduced. I got a public defender while I was in there. And she said, if you don't go to meetings, if you don't stay clean, because you're not going to go to trial for probably a year. So you're going to be out on bond waiting. If you get in trouble in between, you will go away for a very long time. So I had already gotten clean and sober when I was 17. Um, so I was familiar with 12 step. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll go back to meetings. And I went to one meeting that I used to go to. Nobody recognized me or acknowledged me. And I, I had this chip on my shoulder, like, don't you remember me? I've been here before. I was totally ignored. So I would F you <laughs> to everyone. And then a few days later, I ended up at another meeting um, of AA. And that's where uh, February 1st, 1999, I picked up a white ship and started my alcohol and drug sobriety. And then, so I was clean. So then when I went to trial, I had this year of being clean and sober, the public defender. I'll st I still remember, she said, we have a real Pollyanna here. <laughs> so I got, it got reduced to a misdemeanor and a year of probation that I successfully completed. And after the year of probation, was that slate wiped clean? Uh, I mean, it's a misdemeanor. It's still there, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, not a felony, not federal. And 500 Xanax. Were you planning to take your own life? Take my life away from that town where I grew up in. I would sell them on the street, get money and leave. You know, this this part of my story is like the end of a long, horrible journey. <laughs> but that was the plan. I had ended up back at home, back living with my mother, which is like the worst thing for me. The town I grew up in, I, I had moved away from there. So the pills were going to be my ticket back out. So you were planning to sell the Xanax in order to get away or what they call in some of the 12-step programs, a geographical cure. You're looking yes. to get away from yourself, but the unfortunate thing is wherever we go, we go with us. Totally. So I was saying, Natalie, that the problem with a geographic cure is that wherever you go, you go with you. So unless the changes are really being made at the core level, you're stuck with your own behavior and the unmanageability that we create in our own lives. 
I would, I would say I'm a really good testament to that as far as I've been a nomad around the world for the past 10 years, clean and sober, and also having a lot of the isms and still dealing in the realms of sex and love addiction. No matter where you go, there you are. And I have gone everywhere. <laughs> Not to escape necessarily, just I can attest to that. Well, how would you describe the sex and love addiction when it's not for escape? Well, I was meaning like the geographical cure part of it. Yeah. So being a nomad, but not doing that in order to escape where you are, it's more to have the adventure of seeing the world. Yeah. And finding myself everywhere I go. I mean, even just landing back in Bali, I've lived here off and on for nine years. I've been gone for three years during COVID and I just got back two weeks ago and I've had a very up and down relationship with Bali because that's how it is here. Uh, But I, I landed back and oh my God, I was so, I was in bliss. I was so happy to be back. The ecstasy and okay, here we are now two weeks later and the shy, you know, the honeymoon period is already over. (laughs) I'm like, this is so typical of a relationship. The relationship with place and relationship with yourself and getting back together with an ex. (laughs) Already in two weeks. (laughs) Yeah. I think I saw on your Facebook post that you, well, I know you now weigh like 120 or 120 something pounds. And that was the same weight as you weighed in elementary school and not since then. And it's just been the past year that you've really had that freedom from what you described as food addiction. And you know that I share that recovery as well. What do you want to tell the listeners about food as a obsession and an addiction? Yeah, great question. So after I got clean and sober, and then after I quit smoking cigarettes, Mm -hmm. and then I got into a relationship with somebody I met in recovery, who had a food and sugar addiction, it was like this perfect storm for me to just start doing that. So that was back in 2001 when it all started. And through the years, it's been up and down. So what finally made the difference for me was getting into service, getting into intensive service with other addicts in one-on-one, like sponsoring, taking people through the 12-step process that for some reason, again, was another sort of a perfect storm that made the difference for me finally after years of just going back over and over again for it's sugar would be like the worst drug, like experience part of the food addiction. If compulsive overeating sugar addiction. And so, you know, I would have many years of being active in that addiction, managing, controlling excuses, justifications, periods of abstinence, and then always going back. For me, coming from alcohol and drug addiction recovery, it was a little hard at first to be like, well, what is this? I have to eat, you know, that. Right. I I know there were people in the 
AA 12-step community that laughed at me and said, you can't get high off of donuts. You know, it's like, get real. <laughs> and, and yet for me, it was, I remember getting in a car accident and I was probably 19 years old when I got in this car accident. I was in college. I was going to a trimester college in New York and went during the time off from school to study from a colorist painting in Florida with my grand and staying with my grandparents. And I got into a car accident because I was driving with food and eating on my way to the studio and just secretive you know that was a time when I could do that and not have them know what I was doing and I wasn't paying enough attention and I I got into this horrible accident had to post bond in order to come back to New York and you know it's just and I'm thinking yes I I did get arrested for shoplifting and I was shoplifting food and I did get into a car accident because of food and it is for me as much of an addiction as when I was addicted to alcohol and drugs. And it would have taken my life. And I was suicidal as a result of not being able to control my food and my self-esteem going down and down and down. And mm -hmm. so I really understand food and particularly sugar and flour as addictive substances. And yet you do have to eat. You don't have to eat addictively. And it's a hard thing to have a lot of people understand. And how do you define, like you use the word abstinence and I'm thinking a lot of the listeners won't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. I do, but let's define what is abstinence for you? What does that word even mean in terms of food addiction? Well, how do I know I'm in recovery? How do I know? I'm not actively in my addiction. What are those parameters would be the abstinence. So in the past, uh, I, I would just quit sugar, but I wouldn't change anything else. And, you know, that didn't really work. <laughs> One of the biggest hallmarks for me of, of this addiction has been the progression of it and how much worse it got, especially. So I quit uh, two and a half years ago, the I've been in, you know, abstinence since then in recovery. And even like right before this, hopefully last time, I mean, what I was eating, uh, it wasn't just sugar anymore. I was, it was like this alternation between salty and crunchy and sugar. And I remember sitting on the bed, I was high, I was high as hell and I'm giddy but I know what I'm doing. I can't turn off the awareness. That's been, you know, 20 years of knowing what I'm doing. So I'm just sitting there judging myself, hating myself, but feeling high and laughy, sitting alone, watching Netflix, whatever, you know. And then the next morning, day one, again, I mean, day one, a million day ones. So what I found was what was missing was willingness because in the morning, 
today. I've got to start today. No more. I'd feel horrible from the night before. Throw, I'd throw already thrown out everything the night before. So in the morning, the house would be clean and it's clean slate of day one. And then by mid-afternoon, I already knew what I was going to do. And what I realized was there was this tiny shift. I mean, it's almost imperceptible is where, I mean, that's where everything starts. It's like, I had this willingness that was there in the morning. I chose to take my will back or I lost the willingness or I gave up the willingness and, and just gave in. It was it's just a, almost imperceptible. That's really clear to me. I hope it's clear to our listeners, you know, that because when you talk about that imperceptible moment, that's a hard concept to grasp for someone outside of food addiction or in food addiction and also in denial. Well, I mean, I credit my own path, my own spiritual journey, all the work that I've done. I've been meditating every day for nine years, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Like, because I believe that level of self-awareness, I was able to see that very clearly. No, years ago. And that's okay. But that's just, that's just my journey. Can you recall a moment, one of the darkest moments that turned the For some reason, I've used this term a couple of times lately that turned the ship around. Which which addiction, which moment, what? Why don't you go through the first few that come to your mind? Like (laughs) if it was the turnaround in 1999, that one you kind of described, but more recently with the food, what was the defining moment? Well, I mean, I'm kind of describing that, you know, those, those day ones, the never ending day ones. And I really, really wanted it. And I'd had abstinence before and, or, you know, with not eating sugar and not binging. And so in this, I mean, it's really that same story of like, okay, wow, I see what's happening here. I lose my willingness is what happened. I was no longer willing. So then I'm like, okay, that's the missing ingredient. So I started praying to my higher power for willingness, but I feel like that cycle of these day ones, noticing the progression, the crippling obsession. And I think because of my levels of awareness, I just experienced the suffering very deeply. And I, yeah, so, and I was powerless. I was just like, this morning, Natalie, the day, today's day one, and I totally would believe it a hundred percent. And then the night Natalie, you know, totally betrayed that. And it was like Jekyll and Hyde, but it all started from that place of imperceptibility of one single thought that then grew to then it, it gains momentum. And like one definition of obsession I like is inability to say no. So at some point, like it's a trajectory of like, thoughts that build. And then at some point they just, it feels like you can't say no, you can't turn it off. It's overwhelming. There's no other choice. I have to go to the store. So the, I mean, I can always still see when I think about it, the aisle of the store, the two places I would go to get the food. I just couldn't get those aisles out of my head until I went to them. I do remember that in my own journey, the 
the effort to stop the obsession was giving into the food. It's like it was the only thing that stopped it from pounding in my head. And I, I remember taking one bus ride from Boston to Maine, to Portland, Maine. And, you know, that's a couple of hours on the bus. And I got some food stuck in my mind and it wouldn't give me any relief until I had that food in my hand and then in my mouth. And then the worst part of the end of my binge eating was the fact that it was only the first bite that gave me that sense of relief. And when you talked about being giddy, almost high, on, sitting on your bed, I was thinking that I did not experience a high from food that way. I experienced a high from food that was very much like an opiate high. In fact, I remember seeing a rerun of the Mod Squad and one of the members was tying a tourniquet around his arm and shooting up heroin. And all of a sudden his body was shown going slack and every problem went away. And that's what I did with food. I would binge on large quantities of food in front of the television and literally pass out on the couch and my problems would fade away for a moment. The tragedy was at the end of my binging, it was only the first or second bite when I was filled with remorse, regret, self-hate. You know, it was just awful. It wasn't working anymore. And that's what I talk to so many addicts today in my work as a substance use counselor and life coach is, we don't have a problem with drugs and alcohol. We have a solution that stopped working. Mm. And that's when the real tragedy hits. And sometimes the incredible gift of desperation comes along too. And you say, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And I surrender and I ask for help and I ask for that willingness. And Mm, I love that, a solution that stopped working. Any recollections um, from way back when the food may have still been working, or at least in your eyes, or drugs and alcohol, even before the food was prominent? What were some when of When it still worked. When it still worked, or, or some of the escapades, you know, I mean, I, I talk about this show being the dark and the light side, that some of the things at least when we think back on them or recollect them, they're funny as all get up. Living them isn't necessarily that funny. Well, what I'm reminded of is when I got sober, you know, where I got sober, like when you have a year, you can tell your story and be like the main speaker at the meeting. And so I was 23, a year sober. I told the story that was not meant to be funny and everybody laughed. And I was like, oh, this is my funny story now. <laughs> so I don't know if it would be considered that, but um, because, so I was, I, I say I was a teenage drug addict and I mean, it was really dark and depressing and not fun at all. You know, I smoked pot every waking moment that I could and just was a trash can for any substance of any kind. I mean, I was drinking bottles of Robitussin DM before school, you know, and having to run out of a first period class to throw it all up and I mean that's not really a fun escapade one day so I had some pot in my purse and then I had a reputation uh for being a druggie and we were in class and people started saying 
there's a drug dog, there's a drug dog coming. Oh my God, there's a drug dog. And I'm like, oh my God, I have popped my purse. They're going to smell it. And I had this pepper spray my dad had given me for like a, on my keychain for protection. And I'm like, oh, bright idea. I'll spray this pepper spray on my purse so the drug dog doesn't smell the pot. <laughs> and when I did that, the entire class erupted in fits of coughing like two people had to go home sick because they couldn't stop miraculously I didn't cough at all I it didn't affect me at all then this dog kind of walks down the hall there's nobody with it it was a stray dog and yet because I was always stoned and I was out of it like it didn't like I didn't even put it together I just went into fear mode oh my god everybody's saying drug dog spray purse it's it's just a stray dog by itself walking down the hall i got expelled from school for that actually mm -hmm. yeah expelled they wanted to get rid of me but yeah they that was the thing where they finally did i got sober at 24 and told people that i think i drank enough for a lifetime and that was probably true mm -hmm. i did not experiment with very many drugs at all. I was scared of them. I had an older brother, still do, older brother and older sister who were, you know, using heroin and experimenting with different drugs that um, were using different drugs, secondals and all kinds of things that really scared me. And I'm lucky that I was bright enough to be scared. I was such a liar that I lied myself my way into a rehab as a teenager because I wanted to belong. I told them that I was doing drugs that my sister and brother were doing in order to get into a rehab. I think that's ridiculous. You know, wow. And then I came clean at some point in the, in the rehab and they said, you're as much a drug fiend as anyone else here, my dear, <laughs> you, know, you are such a liar. And so it turned on you. It did. And it actually saved my life in many respects. And I'm forever grateful. It was a concept house type of rehab, which was very, I learned later, set up along the lines of um, rehabs within penitentiaries, you know, with expediters that cleaned and you'd wear things hung around your neck and have different jobs to do and confrontation therapy where you're screaming at each other. And yeah, none of it I believe in now. Um, and yet when I was a teenager, I was unable to talk on the telephone or, you know, I was afraid of my own shadow and that really changed things for me. And um, I really came out of my shell in a lot of ways. And yet I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Well, this is really interesting. Um, I was sent to two rehabs at 17. The second one being uh, 11 months. I was in there for 11 months. It was a straight style program, but it was Christian based, which sounds like it might have the same elements, which are like military brainwashing techniques, but they took away the physical. So I went through that program. There's a lot of stories around that, you know, that are kind of cringe, like not funny, <laughs> but interesting. One of them being that in order to get called on, maybe you had something like this. We had this thing called motivating 
you didn't just raise your hand you had to flail your arms very wildly in the air and it looks freaking crazy so sometimes whenever I tell my story I'll I'll demonstrate that at the front of the room and trying to get a laugh but I think people are more like what the hell are you doing they're horrified by the thought of it <laughs> and the visual of it <laughs> any pearls of wisdom that you want to share with listeners Natalie as we wind up well yeah I alluded to it earlier about turning points and I wouldn't say it was necessarily like a dark moment but just just a moment so um, almost four years ago here in Bali, I was at a 12-step meeting and met somebody and he was like, hey, do you want to do an AA big book study, which the big books, the basic text where everything comes from. And I was like, no, I've done that. I know the book. I've been in this program since I was 17. Like, no, I'm not. It's boring. He's like, it will change your life. And I'm just like, you're crazy. No, it won't. I've been sober 20 years. Like, I was not open and his enthusiasm it's like okay fine whatever the very first lesson of that big book study changed my life forever <laughs> because he talked about this disease and this could be any sort of addiction at all is uh now i mean with some like details maybe being different but that he explained we have a disease of body mind and spirit there are three parts of a 12-step program, one for each part of the disease. We go to meetings to treat our body by being around others in recovery we're not using. We treat our mind, the mental obsession, which is the hallmark of addiction, really. It's more important, the mental part, than the physical, because the, if the, me the mental is what causes us to pick up again. So we treat our mind through the 12 step process. But what really got me was the spiritual side. So we have a spiritual malady and it was described to me as emotional unmanageability. And that word, emo those emotional unmanageability, I'm like, oh my God, this is my life. Like even clean and sober many, many times and a disconnection from the truth of what I truly am, which is a divine being, but there's a disconnection about that. So how do you treat the spirit on the AA symbol? It says unity, recovery, service. Service is the solution to heal the spirit. When he shared this with me, I had this paradigm shift, this instant transformation of how I saw everything about the 12-step recovery program. I knew about sponsorship. I knew about service and service positions and making coffee, all that stuff. I always begrudgingly did it. I didn't understand the true benefits of it. And when he described that to me, I was like, this is what's been missing from my life and my recovery for the past 20 years and why I've had kind of this mediocre recovery in addition to being active in food addictions and sex and love addictions as well. Wow. Service was the missing piece and did end up being the solution. So I threw myself into helping as many people as I could. What I felt like was making up for lost time. You know, I have a life now because of all of this, which I'm always grateful for, but I never really gave back. So that was three, when COVID started, I started 
working intensely with as many people as I could and taking them through the, the big book study and the 12 step process, it changed my life forever. And that was three years ago. So it's like, okay, one, getting clean and sober one level, you know, then this has just been a higher level and not to say I'm not human and I still have issues. Yeah. I mean, my life has been trans, I have been transformed in so many ways. So that for me has been just the biggest gift. And, you know, the definition of a miracle is something that can't happen until it does. And that's exactly what I, I'm just like, there's no way that this program I've known my whole life can do anything different than what it's already done. Well, it did. <laughs> Wonderful. And how would people stay in touch with you, Natalie, if they want to continue the conversation? Yeah. So Natalie Speakman, just like it sounds, speak man. You can find me everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, website, Natalie Speakman, Insight Timer, if anyone is on there. Um, yeah, I would love to connect if this is helpful or resonates. And thank you, Nancy. Right. You know, resonate is my license plate. Oh, cool. Love it. And I am on Insight Timer, so I will look for you there for sure. Uh, yay. <laughs> I do Insight Timer meditations every morning. So this has been a wonderful treat. And I hope to get over to Bali and visit you there too. It's so gorgeous. And know if you ever come to Portland, Maine, you have a place. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator, Nancy Adair. 